You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Joining me again this week is Stephen Budd. We've founded three companies together. The first of those, now owned solely by Stephen, is about to celebrate its 15th birthday. So congratulations Ooh. on that. <laughs> I didn't realise it uh, hit that milestone. <laughs> Quite significant. I think that's an yes, amazing achievement. Yes. Well, let's go to the pub and celebrate. <laughs> Stephen has an unusual mix of research, data analytics and product management skills that not only make him ideal to tackle this week's question... They have helped bring to market software products that have sold in multiple countries, been named e-commerce innovation of the year and best new product. Additionally, Stephen's feasibility, customer and market validation work for private and public sector clients has ensured some truly terrible product ideas have gone back to the drawing board, saving heartache and money for all involved, and has helped refine ideas with an inkling of potential into a shape that there's actually a market for. So welcome back to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you. I'm going to keep it to one question this week, and it's from a founder who's very cheekily coming back to the podcast to ask something else. And nothing wrong with that, listeners. We need your questions. Keep them coming. He asks, how do I build a first commercial release version of my product that people actually want to buy? How do I decide what features are essential or otherwise? I have a prototype out there that I've been demoing with. And if I include everything that potential customers say they want, I will never get anything to market. It will take too long and too much money. So where do I start and what does good enough look like? So Stephen's laughing away in the background there. I know you've lived that dilemma, Stephen, uh, for products that we've built together, for products you've managed for others, and also as you've looked at market scoping projects. But before we dive in, perhaps you could introduce yourself and your philosophy, if you have one, on making things that people actually want to buy. Okay. Well, I think you've done a, uh, probably a far better job than I would do of introducing me. In terms of my philosophy for getting products to market, first of all, I think you have to acknowledge it's not easy. You listen to people that have done it and you'll get the impression that it's plain sailing that they woke up one day and hey presto, this, they have this great product idea that overnight you know, became the equivalent of Facebook or, or whatever. Um, so the first thing I'm going to say is that acknowledge that it is tough. It really is tough out there. It's, there are a few ideas that really are revolutionary and I guess that then leads it on to you need to have an awareness that it's going to be um, a blend of things that are going to get you traction. It isn't just going to be, for example, the technology, the functionality, if you're talking, say, about a software product, but it's going to be other things as well, how you market it, how you position it, what the UX and UI is going to be like. And so, again, when I say it's difficult, you have to acknowledge that there's a, there's a very complex interplay of attributes that, that are involved in this. From my perspective, I go through a series of questions, effectively, um, when I'm assessing products or product ideas. And that will give me an idea of what to prioritize, what's going to be difficult, what to bring to market. And really, I mean, more fundamentally, I guess, it's asking each and every time, what problems is actually solving? Is this the best way to solve this problem? What pain is the customer 
feeling. Um, and sometimes your response to that is not isn't necessarily going to be the, the one that you first thought of. It might be a non-intuitive uh, way of responding to that. So the philosophy really, I guess, in summary is it's difficult, it's about the customer, and you need to think in a fairly complex way about how you deliver uh, against their problems. And that's a critical point because I think we both in our daily lives these days meet lots of entrepreneurs who have amazing ideas or they they think they have an amazing idea and they haven't executed on anything. They're very protective of that amazing idea. You know, maybe sometimes, please listen, never do this to me. They want you to sign an NDA just to tell you about their incredible idea. And yet there's no execution behind it. I kind of regard the idea as ten a penny. I just kind of feel like don't get hung up on the idea. There aren't any original ones out there. You know, the idea is just the starting point that you go validate against. There isn't a business if you don't have a customer willing to buy it. I, I almost kind of feel like the startup phase, in a way, is is pre-validation. It's pre-product market fit. It's pre the moment a customer goes, yeah. I'll have I'll have ten of those, please, and, and here's a purchase order. Or you know they hand over their credit card. That's when the process starts. You're right. Physical products, software products, you know, even service-based solutions, which I think go through exactly the same process. They never come out on day one fully baked. And if you're trying to take an idea and you're not being flexible about that, and you're just trying to go and hammer the market over the head with your idea until it gives up and buys, yeah. you're kind of on the wrong path there. Yeah, I, I would agree. And so there's two things that I will pick up from your, your last uh, statements. First of all, the importance of execution. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. There's one caveat that I would put there, though, which I think you were starting to explore towards the end of, of what you were saying, in that execution needs to be intelligent. Just because you've got uh, an algorithm or something like that doesn't mean to say that you should just hammer away at developing that algorithm. It could be the, the important thing. But it, it, it's also a case of you, you're still going to need to validate this as, as, it's, as it's going along. I suppose what I'm trying to say is you don't always have to build this complete, beautiful product to try and get market validation. You should really be thinking in a much more agile way about small increments, about getting this there to get, to get product market fit. And again, it's easier said than done. But it is about execution, but execution shouldn't be blind. That is incredibly important. I mean, obviously, build it and they will come is a is a, a terrible idea. Build what, frankly, and who will come? Yeah. But there is a lot of scoping and validation and testing that can be done without building anything. Yes. And I mean, building in the sense of, again, literally building a physical product or building a software product. How much... Scoping, validating, talking to potential customers can be done in advance of actually building. And what type of approaches might you use for that? There is an awful lot you can do beforehand. I would say, though, that you should always be aware, and I have been guilty of this myself at some point, of trying to get the perfect amount of information before you move, which just holds you up. And actually, how should I put this? You just do it. Uh, kind of thing also has a lot of validity as well. You don't need to analyze to death, but you do need to be vaguely intelligent about about this before you, you start out. And there's there's a lot you can do even before you actually start talking to customers, I think. You can do a lot of desk research yourself and just really work out whether this idea has even a semblance of, of, of being successful. 
There are really two approaches that I take uh, initially. The first of all is to think about it in the strategic context of the company. This is assuming that you have a company that that actually does have a a defined area, defined idea and so forth. And I think it really goes back to um, Dennis Mortensen's uh, observation in one of your early podcasts about having a laser-like focus. Yeah, hyper-focus, you call it. And, And what I take from that is that if your customer is asking for a change that is not going to be one of these things that actually suddenly brings in you know, uh, half a million extra revenue or something like that, but instead takes you from being a software company specializing in clothing analytics through to a company being uh, one that's specializing in laundry analytics, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, That might be a decision, that might be an area that you want to go into, but actually is dragging you away from your core mission. So you need to be aware of the kind of the strategic context. You also need to be aware of what this what these changes mean in terms of the tactical context. So delivering a bespoke software, customized software solution for one customer means that you are not going to have the resources to be able to do something else for another customer. It's a simple trade-off mm-hmm. and you need to work out which of them is in the long term more important to you. The second kind of framework that I'll use, and this isn't original, um, I'll pass you a link to it, I think it's probably Silicon Valley Product Group or something like that, is that I'll ask myself just a series of questions at the, at the very beginning. And they are, and these are really very simple ones, exactly what problem will this solve? What's the value proposition? For whom do we solve that problem? So it's the target market. How big is that? Is the opportunity? So the market size if you're doing it for one customer and it's going to result in an increase of £10 in MRR, probably not worth it, for example. What alternatives out there? What's the competitive landscape? Why are we best suited to do this? Differentiated? Why now? In other words, you know, you have a customer that's shouting for something. Is it urgent or is it just because they're, they're in your face and they're the people that you see the most? How we get it to market? How we measure success and make money from this product? And I think that is, that's obviously vitally important. You need to know in advance what what success looks like. And incidentally, we were talking earlier about paying customers. I have to acknowledge also there are times when actually you're not interested in paying customers, but you're just simply interested in customer acquisition, especially if you're in a platform business, because at some point you're going to get other people to pay for you aggregating those customers. Yeah. But that's, that's by the by. What factors are critical to success? Uh, and then putting all of those together, uh, what's the recommendation? And I guess actually there's also a third framework that I would use is that I would just get an idea of kind of what the reward is, what the effort is yeah. as well. To go back to the point I made earlier, if I'm doing one thing, I can't do another. It's so I just need to balance up there what's the most important. And it's very interesting because these are absolute business existential questions. Yes. And I think it's really important for founders, CEOs to kind of remember, particularly that you know, your product manager, your product lead, who is essentially responsible for getting what is your business to market, has to be asking and has to be included in if you're not doing the role directly yourself. Absolute fundamental existential questions of does this startup, this business deserve to exist? Now, if you're in a position that you've got, you know, you're Unilever, you've got hundreds and yeah. hundreds of brands and this is a decision about do we bring in you know a pink version of that soap powder that's a slightly different place yeah whereas when your product is the business it is the startup these are really fundamental questions and 
I think you can very easily find yourself many years into a company, many, many years into a company, and not actually have properly done this about your product. Absolutely. Anyway, yes. Perhaps in some ways we've been there ourselves. Absolutely. At, at certain points. Yes. Um, and, I, and, and it's fascinating because I'm in other episodes I talk about Galalit's um, 24 Steps of Discipline Entrepreneurship, which expands this somewhat, especially around the commercial models, because it is about the business, not purely the product. But this is largely a paper exercise, right? I mean, yes. there's literally nothing on those 10 questions that you've just asked that requires you rushing out building an MVP or raising £100,000 in order to build a demo. Absolutely. And you notice also there that a lot of this you can actually do without even talking to a customer. <laughs> you know, you, you actually, you're doing the first pass where you are, you're really sort of just putting your finger in the air and seeing which way the wind is blowing. And this is going to give you a good idea of should I even be bothering this, this, this customer? And that's, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, taking it back to how we did it with our last long run business, the last software business we did together, I went through two or three iterations of an idea before I got to the point that I felt I'd got one that was good enough to start a company with. Yeah. I can't remember if I talked about this in other podcasts or not, but I went from trousers that would tell me if they fitted me when I walked into the shop through to a tool that would identify what size I should buy, which turns out to not work because the products are not consistent, through to then I came up with a technology idea, which was e-commerce, and you you chose what you wanted to buy, and at the shopping cart process, you put in your measurements, and so then it would be assembled so that it fit you. Actually, I was really obsessed with that one for quite a while. I thought that was my big yeah. idea. And actually, I went through this process, did the business model canvas with somebody, and realized that there was a big hole in my entire assumptions. Yeah. Kept working, but found there was something interesting in it. Came up with the idea behind clear returns, which was maybe if we understand who's going to return something and what product is going to come back, we can prevent some of this. Yeah. And only then did I go out to the actual retailers. So that was that was a year in, yeah. really. And that's when I started to pulling you and pulling other people and start to go, actually, I think I've got, think I've yeah. got a company-worthy idea here. Yeah. So I will stress, just building on what you said and what I said just now, is that you do need to involve customers. <laughs> you know, it's pure, pure and simple. There's no, no getting away from this. So really what I'm talking about here with this first pass is, is really just a, do I even need to bother customers? And then if you kind of think there's something of an idea there, it may not be perfect as you, as you uh, described just now, uh, but it actually gives you su it gives you some ground um, from which to start. I think um, something else that's also for me significant as well when you're especially at this early stage uh, is if you can try and think like a product manager, it's going to really help you. And what I mean by that is imagine that you're not the CEO with this brilliant idea, but you are the person who is going to have to brief a often skeptical tech team, which is going to say, "But what is it? What exactly is it?" They're going to ask you hard questions. And I appreciate that in some respects that's getting towards solution, but it also does help to, to winnow out a lot of fluffiness and, and, and faff and that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Say, for example, you're a CEO and you think, great, I'm going to have a, um, a solution that uh, addresses GDPR issues. 
So then you have to think, you know, but, but if you obviously gave that as a brief to some developers and said, or something that addresses GDPR issues, they're just going to look at you uh, as though you're mad. Uh, obviously, you've got to be saying, well, what kind of issues are you, are you solving here? Is this what, and again, it goes back to this, these questions here. Uh, what market is this for? What exactly is it? What area is it? And I'm, again, you don't need to be doing this to the nth degree, but you've got to have something that's, that, that just sharpens up your thinking. A little bit. And I think the key thing in this is, well, actually there's two. One, listening. CEOs, founders, startup visionaries are appalling at listening. They are just terrible at going into these early stage meetings where the potential customer will tell them freely everything they need to know to either get this right or wrong and do. They're appalling at hearing it and they're appalling at listening. I totally count myself into this. You know, meetings that I did on my own at the super early stage, I went in there, cast my reality distortion field, sold my vision of the solution. And people brought up to that because I'm a good vision salesperson. Yep. Meetings that you did were far more exploratory. You dived into the problem how who has that problem, what does that look like, what would solved look like, where do you fit into the picture and you listen to I noticed obviously that when we did meetings together, how that worked through. How would you encourage founders like me <laughs> um, really to go into those very early stage meetings and listen better and, and actually get the input and the feedback they need? Because these aren't sales meetings, are they? They're not sales meetings, and so I think I think it's it's rare that you're going to have a combination of skills that's required in the situation in in one person. It can be done, but I'm in some respects I'm reminded of an exercise I did once with a group um, where there were two sort of two classic, slightly introverted uh, product managers and three extroverted salespeople. The extroverted salespeople did one session. The introverted did, did another, um, and basically we got nothing done because of the culture clash. Actually, we needed to work together. Um, there needed to be a balancing up of the the introversion and the data gathering and the listening, along with the, the sales. Because basically, to get a reaction, you need to poke somebody. That's kind of where the sales bit comes in. But then also taking on board that that feedback as well. I guess I was able to, to play that role uh, a lot better because... In those meetings, I wasn't having to perform as a salesperson. I didn't have the the adrenaline flowing through and that kind of. Basically, I could sit there and be quite calm uh, about this and just have that have that distance really. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that's that's actually really very very difficult. But I guess you could also arm yourself with a series of questions that are going to help you get to the uh, to the nub of this 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 question. I think it's important. That you don't in these early meetings, you don't go in with a solution. That's hugely important. Once you go in with a solution, then you're you're kind of defining some territory already, or even an assumption of a solution. I mean, I did this with clear returns. I assumed from very early on, returns cost the business lots of money. Therefore, you will want to reduce your returns. Yeah. Therefore, the whole principle of everything we built as a business after that was built on the assumption that. People want to reduce their returns. Yeah, and I think so there's a couple of other things in there as well. Um, but it kind of—I think you're starting to touch on it. It's, it's a case of working out who cares and how much do they care. Yeah, and whether this is an urgent problem. Your, your sales process is going to be that you will get kind of the brush off, 
but you can start exploring your 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 idea, not necessarily your solution, but your idea in in other kind of ways. So what I'm getting at here is that you, you start to put a, a value mm-hmm. on what this means, what getting rid of this problem would mean to somebody. And it, it may be that they, they just don't care about this yeah. initially. But to give you an example, it's one that I was taught. There was an issue which was just resulting in lots of overtime. And it was kind of, feel well, there's budget there for overtime, really doesn't matter that much. But when you start to think, okay, so overtime equals this amount of week, this amount of month, this amount of year. And actually, if I manage to reduce overtime through the introduction of a process solution, whatever, that means as a manager, I would have an extra two million pounds to play with in my budget. What could I do with that instead? So problems worth two million, basically. Yep. Is it basically going to make me look good as well? Yep. So there's other kind of motives as, as well. So, but you need to dig down into that problem to put a value on it and an, an emergency. Yeah, and that's that's the key thing: is what problem are you really solving? Yeah, I do know the person that asked this question. I know what their product is, and they are solving a problem that has a, a cash price against it. But like we all do, as they go out and talk to people about it, very quickly you end up with a wish list. You know, I'm solving X problem that does. In, in this way. And if you've not really nailed down the problem beneath the problem beneath the problem, you go into these conversations and it, it, it grows arms and legs and a feature list and a wish list and all of this kind of thing. I found that over and over again in our last business. And I think it was because we hadn't truly, we thought we'd nailed the problem. Yeah. But the assumptions in that weren't completely correct. I mean, they were logical. It was, I'm still super proud of it. It was brilliant. It was logical. Here, you know, we can save you 35 million quid a year. How could anybody not care that much yeah. about that? Except because we hadn't got to that point of, yeah, but who, nobody, it, it wasn't anybody's 35 million quid. Yes. It wasn't, somebody couldn't sit there and go, my life. If I put a lot of effort into solving this problem about returns, my life will get better in this way in my working life. And therefore, you know, I'll have a promotion or I'll have more budget or I'll have more people. It wasn't expressed that way. And I think the feature list that needs to go into your basic commercial product has to include the piece that makes your target customer's life better. Yes, absolutely. If it only has one thing in it, and the one thing in it only works 50% well, which is the one thing that will deliver on all this? Which is the one thing that even if your product is broken and only kind of half competent, still delivers on making your target customer's life better in the way that is meaningful for how they're judging success? Because if you just put that in it, even if it's got a horrible user interface, even if it doesn't work two times out of ten, The other eight times they're going to be loving it so much and then they're going to be coming back with the feedback. Yes. Yep. So if you're trying to get to that point where you need to figure out what to put in that first commercial version of the product, if you took everything else away, every, you know, if it's got 10 features or 100 features, you took everything out, the one bit that you have to leave is the bit that delivers to your target customer the solution to their most burning problem in the way that even if it only works yeah. a third as well as it's supposed to, or 50% as well as it's supposed to, actually delivers something where they can go, wow, 
my life is measurably better as a result of this. Yeah, absolutely. That's when they buy. Yes. We're starting to come to that point where you've got this interplay uh, between art and science in some respects. And what I mean by that is that when you have an early stage product, you're not going to have a lot of data points to help you realise what the, the burning aspects are. But I think you can get data points. And it's actually, it's also the same when you have a product that isn't completely early stage that does have versions out there and it, 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 it is selling. For an early stage product that hasn't even really gone to market yet, I probably take the same approach that I took with some other products, which is just to say, how many customers are asking for this? How much interest am I actually getting in it? And there's products, you know, there's, there's stuff where, especially if you're, you're working in an organization with a sales team, your sales team obviously need to make sales. They get commission and all that kind of thing. They got a lot of skin in that, that game. And they'll try, they'll typically be pulling you all over the place. But actually, if I got three salespeople independently saying, we really need this, I kind of think, yeah, there's something starting to happen there. That's, that's, that's a signal that I, I shouldn't be ignoring because there's a, there's a collection here mm-hmm. of, of requirements. Obviously, if you have a product that is established, it's out there then you can be looking at your analytics as well um, to see what usage is like. Although it also caution there as well, because you, you've got to, again, you've got to understand how people use your product. You have this expectation, I think, when you build a product that a lot of time that it should be used every day or people using it a lot is a good thing. And in some cases, absolutely. But there are also some products that you don't, simply don't use every day. You need to understand the context in which they're delivered. In my experience, <laughs> possibly yours as well, you can do a lot of this right. You can do a lot of the research right. You can do a lot of the scoping right. You can speak to customers. You can get better at listening to what you're tell- they're telling you. And you can kind of pull all of this together into a decent brief and all of that kind of thing. And then somewhere in the product development and build process, it goes horribly wrong. And what comes out is not what you expected. It's not what the client expected. It's not what anybody probably wanted. Yeah. Um, something's gone wrong. What What's going on there? And how do you prevent that? So I think there's, this comes down to a number of things. For example, you, you don't have infinite resources. You have constrained resources. And by that, I mean both in terms of headcount, for example, money um, to buy equipment, that kind of thing, but also skills as well. So the classic case in terms of software development, of course, is that you've got people who are really great often at uh, doing programs, backends, that kind of thing, but pretty much hopeless. And they usually admit this themselves when it comes to a user interface that encourages use, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and so you get something that in the background is actually pretty good. But you give it to the customer who is a different user to your technical people, and they'll just say, I can't use this. Uh, you know, I, I need a PhD or something like mm. that. No, it's just not, not, not for me. So marrying it up with the, with, I'm still completely understanding the customer's expectations. Uh, and the product manager especially needs to be all over that. And as an aside on that one as well, I think you, again, you need to understand the context in which some of this stuff is used. So, I gave the example there of a decent front end. It could well be that you don't even need a front end. Actually, what you just need is the data that's plugged into 
a thing here that does this thing when mm-hmm. this thing happens. So again, it's about understanding that, that that question. I mean, we talked about this before in our episode about when you're the non-technical founder, but it's worth coming back to again, I think, because I've just seen this go wrong so many times is that you do the work. You do all this legwork as the founder or as the product manager. But a lot, I mean, I appreciate a lot of people at the early stage don't have a product manager or, or a product lead, although I really would urge you that that you should in your co-founding team, your very early stage team have somebody just dedicated to owning product um, because you can't do everything yourself. What I do see is the founder doing everything right in lots of ways. They go talk to the customer, they gather all of this information, and then it all gets lost in translation. There are assumptions that you make about how product is made or what it's going to look like or what you need from it that you don't make specific. If you don't very specifically surface that this needs to be made as a 3D printed prototype, as opposed to the actual materials of the product, it's going to get made in the actual materials of the product. You don't specify it. Likewise, in software, if you don't say, my expectation is that you know, this will be using a large data set that's going to be at least two years worth of data, so this needs to be able to handle it. It needs a database. It needs the ability to query in those queries not take 15 minutes to display the results. If you're not specific about what seems blinking obvious to you about your expectations, yeah. it doesn't happen. There's a, You need to balance up, I guess, whether you actually do build this in from the very beginning, and it will need effort to do it, or whether you're just going to say, look, I don't even know if I've got an idea here yet, so I'm just going to go for the 50,000, and if we get people nibbling then we know we've got a problem and we've got to address that problem. Yeah. So in some respects, it's, it's it's a balancing act, I think. It is. And it's that point where you're going from, is the object of the product to learn more? Is the object of the product market validation? Yeah. So is it your MVP product or your pre-prototype, possibly your prototype, but that's getting into dif- different territory. If the object of what you're building is to figure out if anybody would buy it, because you're going to show it to them as a demo and go, if I invest six months and a lot of money into making this work, what does it need to do? I completely agree. That's the point where you're, you're building. Why, you're not building a product, you're building airware. You know, you're building a PowerPoint presentation that looks like a product. You're, you're yeah. faking it. But when you cross the line into now I have a sale or now I've got customers going, yep, I want to buy that. Yeah. And you're building that first commercial release. If it can't handle the basics of why it exists, no, because um, nobody spelled that out in the brief. And, yeah. and I mean, I've done this, I've learned this the hard way. I, I can't believe how dumb some really intelligent people can be because you didn't spell out the bleeding obvious. Yes, I think there are some things that you do need to spell out. And there's other stuff where you're then moving over into the territory of offering a complete solution. And I, the reason I hesitate is because, especially with a, a, a non-technical uh, founder, you might not actually have the best solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so and in some respects, I think we're, we're sort of starting to move towards why Agile is a good thing to consider. I think you need to involve people who will be there offering you a solution pretty 
pretty quickly because I have generally found that if you're coming up with a really dumb idea, um, developers will tell you that you're coming up with a really dumb idea and why this is a dumb idea. A lot of the time, yes, they'll try to be thinking of stuff that, um, that they'll be future-proofing your product and that might not be appropriate at that moment, in which case you need to make a judgment call on that. But actually getting some, some feedback of uh, that allows you a little bit of a wiggle room and flexibility at a really early stage from your um, development team is also really is going to be really really useful to you. But I, I think also you used the example just now of uh, delivering something in six months. That's a big heavy sink of time. One of the principles, one of the ob- objects of Agile, is that you should be able to deliver something that a customer can use really at the end of each sprint, mm-hmm. every couple of weeks. What you're describing in your six months is basically a waterfall project. And I appreciate this is, again, easier said than done. But if you are able to start delivering stuff that's customer usable every couple of weeks, that also means you can get feedback from customers every couple of weeks. And again, I'm assuming a SaaS software product here as opposed to, I don't know, a great piece of new technology that cleans your kitchen or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I appreciate that really is different. But with with software, if you can start to deliver stuff that that lands in the hands of customers quickly, in increments and builds up to what you're, you're delivering, then you're going to know fairly quickly whether what you need to be doing, where where you know where you're going wrong. If you're you know after the end of six weeks, you're getting absolutely no interest whatsoever in this product. People simply aren't using it, and you understand the context for them not using it being a not good one. Then you know you can either walk away or stop sinking your, your money into it. So that comes back to the person who's asking the question: Where do I start, and what does good enough? look like you know you're talking about it's a fascinating point you're looking at i suppose breaking that down into the smallest chunk of value that you can deliver on yes that you can go out and get some evidence did it work with the potential market or not yeah instead of kind of thinking about those as great six-month increments that you need to go raise money for usually, which then is a whole other ball game because then you're just working on raising money and then you're building what you told the investors you were going to build when you raised the money as opposed to what people say they want. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Tip from the experience there. Um, But if you break that down into like really small chunks of stuff and live on that and have a proof point of value or proof point of acceptance that you're looking for, now, I mean, I've seen a wonderful example of this, actually, and I hope she doesn't mind me naming her, but Bonnie, who has Bonnie Bra's engineering mindset, has made a great new kind of bra. Even though that she had a beautiful prototype, she was thinking about making that prototype bigger and bigger, and how was she going to launch this mass? And she was thinking about all of this stuff, and at no point was she actually selling it. And we had a, a mentoring session where I said, just put it on Facebook and sell it. And to her credit, in the course of the weekend, she did that. Um, She got enough orders to go buy the material to make her first batch. What she then learned just from that one, and it was proper sprint, what she learned from that was actually she'd been thinking about this in multiple colors, which is really expensive. Because if she's having to make five of this and four of this and 30 of this, the costs of doing that are... To her as the producer, yeah. really high. Yes, and she decided to test. What about if I only sell black ones? Yeah. So she changed very quickly. She changed all the advertising and the messaging and said it's only available in black to measure whether that changed her 
order rate? Yeah. You know, did it cause people to not buy them anymore, or was there like no discernible difference? Yeah. No discernible difference. So now she is making this product, and the feature of it, you know, it's only available in black. Yeah. And yet, that's dramatically changed the potential profitability, scalability, and operational efficiency of that business. Yeah. Whether I mean, Bonnie, you can comment yourself whether that was entirely deliberate thought about in that way or whether that was an accidental consequence of doing this type of process i'm not sure but it was very very smart and it shows that you can take that type of approach to physical product as well as software product yeah and i don't think there's pretty much anything out there that you can't sell first or at least have the build sell type conversation around to measure the interest to then do your next increment of delivery yeah and i think that's that's I love that uh, that tale there. It also reminded me of something else that is, I think, is crucial, which is that you do need to have um, what I would call sector expertise. To use the example of Bonnie's bras, I wouldn't be particularly good in that kind of sector because I haven't experienced the issues of them. No, and I wouldn't uh, because I have a very flat chest. Um, but she had like real personal expertise yep. and she was solving a problem that she had experienced herself. Absolutely. And so she had that real connection to the customer and she could iterate and on the right kind of things. I mean, because again, because she knew the problem intimately, yep. haha, um, she was representing herself as the customer, yeah. which can be a risk because there are, you know, obviously, you aren't the only customer, even if you represent the customer. Yeah. But but she actually absolutely had domain knowledge there. And I think that is something when you're trying to figure out what needs to be in your commercial version of the product and your MVP, if you can get a customer or somebody that really super represents your customer on your advisory panel in your product working group or your product review group. I mean, the one that I'm doing at the moment, I'm going to have a customer review panel. So at each stage, what we're doing, what we're creating, what we're building through this process is going to be market reviewed before any other features get passed, really, just to avoid building down the wrong path. Absolutely. This also brings me back to understanding the the elements of value that this delivers to your customer. The importance of that is is obviously realizing how it is valued by the customer and the role that it plays. And you you start off with the assumption that value is going to be a monetary one. But the example I gave earlier, um, the guy who saved two million pounds suddenly looks really good and is going to get promotion, Mm. for example. Freeing up time. I mean, freeing up time from taking people away from... You still mean time is money, especially in B2B, but if you're saving somebody 20 weeks a year, that's really tangible value. Yes. But then that's what your feature, your core feature set, your core product DNA, take everything away, what's left has got to deliver that. Yeah, yeah. That outcome of value and that outcome of success. Absolutely. So to use uh, an example Let's take clothing, actually. Your elements of value there can be, there's, there's probably going to be a, a load of them, but you're going to wear clothes, well, warmth and, you know, all that kind of thing being one of them. But then you start to get things like, do I look attractive in this? Do I, do I feel comfortable in this? Yes. Things like that. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to wear shoes that are going to make me lame. For example, that's that's a that's a bad investment. Mm. What's what's the value? And it's yeah. very interesting because I mean, I, I had an important meeting the other day, and I was had been traveling for four or five days, and 
the day before that meeting, I just felt that the clothes I brought with me didn't make me feel like the person, yeah. uh, the image I wanted to convey in that meeting. And there is a price tag to it because the type of shop I went to to purchase something to wear that I would feel confident and like I was in the right meeting. Yeah. Well, I didn't run around the corner to Primark. And I would for, for many functions, yes. but that wasn't one of them. Yeah. Um, so it's quite clever. It's, it's a good example how that's baked in. And again, with that one there, you're going to have, you've got diff- obviously you've got different market segments. So you open a typical Sunday newspaper, for example, uh, that's going to have an older readership and your clothes adverts there are going to fo- focus much more on comfort, yes. durability, as opposed to, am I going to look good down the club? Yeah, elasticated waistbands and all that kind of yeah. thing. So thank you so much um, for joining me on this one, Stephen. Before we wrap up, going back to the question, how do I build that first version of my product that people will actually want to buy? And what does good enough look like? Is there any final closing thought that you would urge this founder to bear in mind? I guess it would be see see how many data points you can get to see see what actually is important. So you're, you're trying to prioritize. You're, you're going to have a lot of stuff thrown at you. You're going to have the temptation, especially in an early stage, thinking one customer represents all customers. Uh, and actually, that problem never really goes away, especially when you have a customer that comes along and says, actually, I'm going to give you an extra half a million a year to do this. It's, I know it's not your core mission, but I, here's, here's what I'm going to do. And then you've got to face up, face up to whether you're actually going to do that or not. But it's, yeah, try to get a number of data points. Try to understand what this problem is, is actually solving. Understand what the value of it is what the real value of it is to the customer. If it's, if it's a B2B, then you've got to work out, especially what it is in the bottom line. So understand what the, what the value is. And as I say, it's, it's prioritization, what delivers on that, that major pain point the most, but also bear in mind as well the costs associated with delivering that. And it may well be that it's, it's worth it. But as I say, if you've got something that is going to take you the equivalent of five months and increase your re- revenue by not a jot, then don't do it mm-hmm. um, unless you've got some other fiendish plan. Yeah, I have to say my biggest takeaway from what you, you've said, and I actually need to go back and adjust my own thinking on this, is stop thinking about those long six-month chunks and start thinking about two-week sprints, even if you're yeah. not talking about software. I'm going to go execute on that. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Stephen Budd, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Arts. If you like the podcast, then do me a big favour and tell the world. They can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and my new entrepreneuragonyant.com website. Mm.